0: Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. This morning, we will look at the much awaited interaction between Jacob and Esau. And it seemed like you know, we've been waiting for this for quite some time because of something that happened 20 years prior in Jacob's life and you know as he's coming back to the land we're all wondering okay what is going to happen to Jacob as he meets Esau but one of the things I want to really highlight first and foremost as we look at this passage is that as we look at these individual episodes in the book of Genesis we shouldn't We shouldn't read it without regard to what God is doing. You see, in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, God had promised to send a savior who would crush the head of the serpent and would essentially reverse the curse of sin and death and restore the world to himself, a world that would once again glorify God. And we have been seeing in the past few weeks or even past few months of how God has focused on certain people where from chapter 12 onwards he started with uh, a man named Abraham and then from Abraham went that covenant. he made a covenant with Abraham and that covenant blessing that would come of blessing to the nations it was part of that redemptive plan. And then from Abraham, that blessing, that covenant blessing was passed on to Isaac. And then from Isaac, we have seen how those covenant blessings, that plan of redemption and restoration was then passed on to Jacob. He would be the bearer of this promise and God would use him now to continue to fulfill his plan of redemption. So we shouldn't lose sight of that. That's what God is ultimately doing even in these individ- as we look at these individual episodes, that's what God is doing. He's fulfilling His plan of redemption. Now, we saw last week, you know, Jacob has been a hard nut to crack. I mean, for twenty years, twenty years before God had told him, "I will be with you, Jacob." You know, he received the covenant blessing. I will protect you and I will be with you wherever you are. And yet we saw that in the 20 years that because of the conniving, scheming, self-sufficient kind of person that he was, because of that character, there was a sense in which even though he was the blessed heir of the Abrahamic promise, he had to go away from the promised land. A sort of an exile of sorts, if you want to call it. And for 20 years, he's outside the land of promise. And we see that even in those 20 years, Jacob is still scheming. Jacob is still conniving, even deceiving at times. And yet, God has only been gracious to him. And then finally, we saw last week as Jacob is now preparing to enter the land. He's, you know, what's come back to memory is his brother Esau, whom he's totally defrauded. And rather than thinking of, okay, God has been shown so much grace to me, and how is my relationship with God? All he's thinking of is Esau, and he's scared of Esau. And yet God is still very gracious with Jacob. And we saw how God manifested himself in the form of a man and in fact in the book of Hosea we'll see he's actually an angel and so he manifests himself in this physical form and wrestles with Jacob at night and Jacob with all his tenacity is wrestling God in in this physical form and yet he can't overcome him and then finally towards the break of day God touches him at the hip and his hip goes out of of its socket. Really, God was crippling him and weakening Jacob. Graciously showing, Jacob, you are not self-sufficient in of yourself. I'm the self-sufficient one. I'm the one who strives. I'm the one who fights ultimately because I'm the supreme one. No one comes against me And your job is to depend on me. That is what you need to do and then things will go well for you. Don't you see how gracious I have been with you? And so there is a sense in which at the end of it, Jacob says, for I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. Now, if, you know, in fact, this question was asked to me last week after I preached, how is it that, you know, isn't there, you know, even with Moses, God says no one can see God's face and live. Then how is it possible for Jacob to have survived then? Well, what you need to understand is God came in a physical form where he veiled his glory. He didn't come in all blazing glory. If If that were the case, no man would be able to stand in his presence. But God had veiled his glory in this physical form. And so in that sense, Jacob was able to see God and even wrestle with God. But Jacob understands this is the great God and he is the one who I should be ultimately concerned about. And I'm thankful that he has been so gracious to me all this time and even today And I live to tell the story. Now it's morning time. And Jacob probably hasn't slept that much. And he crosses the river and he joins his family limping. Obviously because now this is going to be a permanent weakness for Jacob and a continual reminder that he is not self-sufficient in of himself and he needs to depend on God. Now he's limping and it says from the previous chapter that a, a new day had come and the sun had risen up. So as to say this is now a new chapter in Jacob's life. The sun had set, the wrestling had happened, Jacob has been weakened, he's now depending on God, his name has been changed to Israel, and now a new day, a new chapter has begun in Jacob's life. And this brings us to chapter 33. And I've titled this morning's sermon as Jacob's Reunion with Esau. And we'll look at this passage under three headings. First, we'll look at the meeting in verses 1 through 4. Then we'll look at the conversation between Jacob and Esau in verses 5 through 11. And then we'll look at the peaceful separation in verses 12 through 20. And again, I want to remind you, while there is a lot of interaction between Jacob and Esau, the big picture in this is this that God is continuing to further his plan. He's fulfilling his promise of redemption and he's moving that plan forward. And more so what you see here is God's astounding grace again for an absolute scoundrel like Jacob. So firstly, the meeting. Verse 1 It says, And Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. And so he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, and then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. And he went on before them. Let's just stop there for a moment. So Jacob hasn't slept much, he's caught up with his family, he's still got a limp. And while, you know, he probably hasn't even had time to just make sense of everything that has happened, there in the distance he sees Esau and 400 men approaching him from a distance. Again, you know, what is Esau going to do? Is he going to come to kill him for all that he's done in the past? Or is this some sort of welcoming party? And so, what does Jacob do? Jacob, as a precautionary measure, and this is where I think you see some of Jacob being Jacob again, he organizes his wives and his children into three groups. So, first, in the first group, right in front, he has the maidservants, Bilhah and Silpa, his concubine wives, and The sons through them. Then in the next group, he has Leah and her sons, his uh, other wife. And right at the back, he has Rachel and her son, Joseph. Rachel, his beloved wife, is right at the back, along with her son, Joseph. Now, why do you think he's done this? Well, you can only imagine if Jacob is being Jacob, why is he doing this? Because he's showing favoritism here. Because his favored wife and the favored son, if you notice, Joseph is the only son that is named as well here. None of the other sons are named. And it's also a picture of what will happen later. And so Rachel and her son Joseph are placed right at the back because just in case things go south with the meeting with Esau, Rachel and Joseph has the best chance to escape from it all. You know, it's almost like the, the other family, other wives and his sons are expendable for him. I mean, this would have been painful, I'm sure, for the rest of the family to watch. To think that they were expendable. All the other children were expendable. But Joseph was his precious son. So he's placed right at the back. And the text is hinting at uh, at, at Jacob showing favoritism to Joseph. And this will become even more evident later on as it will lead to a lot of strife and jealousy and a lot of pain in the family years later. So there's, in one sense, Jacob is still Jacob, but we also see some change in Jacob. Remember in in the previous chapter, in Genesis 32, Jacob had sent everyone in front of him saying, oh, just tell, if you see Esau, just tell him, I'm right behind. You guys go on forward. I'm just going to be right behind. But now when you see Jacob, he's injured, he's walking with a limp and what does he do? He puts himself right in front of everyone. I mean, he's not strong at all. I mean, this guy is totally weak right now, but he takes responsibility now for his household and he leads the way saying, hey, ultimately I've caused this issue. I'm going to take responsibility and I'm going to lead the way and he's right in front of his family. And so here we do see a changed Jacob. There is a sense in which he is relying on the Lord here. He's no longer cowering in fear. Now verse 3 says, He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Now this bowing to the ground seven times it's a formal way in which uh, a servant would greet a king how uh, a, a, f- a formality I- by which an inferior would greet a superior you know technically one bow if it all would have been sufficient but that would be just an informal greeting you know J- jacob doesn't want to do that given the you know, the pass between him and his brother. And besides, he doesn't know what Esau is going to do. So instead, what he does is instead of an informal greeting, he has this grand procession, this grand formal greeting where Jacob bows down to the ground, you know, face flat on the ground, S- uh, seven times so you can imagine this this guy is limping the whole way through and then he bows himself to the ground putting his face on the ground then he gets up starts limping for a bit then again puts his head to the ground face on the ground and he does that seven times this is a very formal way of acknowledging someone somebody superior you know and the irony here is that if you remember back in Genesis 27 and 29, you know when Isaac had thinking it was Esau, blessed Jacob. One of the things he blessed him with is he said, "Your mother's sons shall bow down to you." But what's happening here? The exact opposite. It's not his brother bowing down to him, it's Jacob now bowing down to Esau. How? How do we make sense of this? Well, think of it this way. You see, previously, Jacob had been the the conniving scoundrel of a man. You know, always grabbing things, wanting his way. And he took away the birthright and the blessing from Esau. You know, almost forcibly taking his older brother's place. That's what he had done previously. Now, Jacob, as he's doing this, is is essentially saying, Esau, I'm formally coming to you to tell you, I'm not here to take anything from you. I'm sorry for what I've done. And I'm humbling myself before you. And I want to honor you and make things right between us for what I've done in the past. So in this way, Jacob, in a formal sense, is bowing seven times to the ground and coming before Esau. Now look at what Esau does. Jacob doesn't know how Esau is going to react. And look at how Esau responds, verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. I mean, it's a moving scene, isn't it? 20 years of being estranged from one another as brothers. You know, it was a relationship that was marked with discord and hostility and and we're expecting Esau to be angry and ready to kill his brother for all that he has done. But instead, what does Esau do? He hugs his brother, kisses him, and they weep together in joy. Now you might say, how do we understand this change of heart with Esau? What, what's happened to Esau? Well, here's two possibilities. I'm, I'm sure there's more, but here's two possibilities. You know, maybe because the Lord had made Esau prosperous over the years, over the past 20 years, Esau has let that grudge go. Or maybe seeing his brother Jacob coming this way before him in such a humble way has melted Esau's heart. Now regardless, I think we should understand this, two things in light of Esau's reaction, to help us understand Esau's reaction. First is the Lord's promise. Remember the Lord had promised Jacob that he would bring him back safely to the land so that his covenant promises would be fulfilled god had promised that so in one sense we know that nothing is going to happen to jacob because god promised you're going to be safe and then secondly if you remember from last week Jacob had prayed this prayer in Genesis 32:11 where he said, "Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children." And so there's also a sense in which the Lord was answering Jacob's prayer as well. So when we put all this together, this is what we can say, the change of heart that we see with Esau is ultimately the lord's work remember with laban the lord had appeared to him and warned him saying you should not touch my servant jacob that was a very obvious thing that god had done a work there but in the case of esau the lord has somehow providentially either overnight or over the years worked in esau's heart and now is protecting jacob what does Proverbs 21.1 say? The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. The Lord is able to turn people's heart in any way he wills. That's how sovereign God is. Now it's not as obvious as the Lord's dealing with Laban, but nonetheless, God was still at work even in Esau's heart. And this is how the Lord works, right? You know, sometimes in very obvious ways, where, you know, perhaps, you know, where we'll say, oh, that was really God's doing. You know, I can't deny that. It really was God's doing. And there are other times when it's not so obvious and where we might be tempted to say, I don't know, things just kind of happened somehow and things just happen favorably. See beloved, one of the things we should never forget is that God is sovereign. And he's as much work at work in the obvious as he is in the not so obvious ways as well. He's constantly at work, always doing good for his people. Jacob did not expect Esau to respond in such a brotherly way. But this was the Lord at work, protecting Jacob, fulfilling his promise to Jacob, and even doing more than what Jacob could have imagined. And really, the Lord continues to work the same even today with his people. As people look back at their lives, you know, they can say with Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3.20, that he is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. I don't think Jacob would have ever imagined that things would ever be right with him and Esau. And yet here is Esau hugging him and crying him and embracing him. This was indeed the Lord's work. So here we see the Lord's gracious work in the meeting of Jacob and Esau. And this brings us now to the conversation that the two brothers will have in verses 5 through 11. Verse 5, it says, And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Likewise, Leah and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. So now, you know, after that initial greeting, Esau now looks around and he sees all the women and the children. See, the last time Esau saw Jacob, Jacob was still a single man. And so Esau asked Jacob, who are all these people with you? And Jacob says, this is my family, my children, that God has graciously given me. Again, we see some change in Jacob here. He acknowledges that in spite of how he has been all these years, God has graciously given him So many children. It's not something that I deserve, Jacob tells Esau. But God has graciously given me this family and all these children. This is God's doing and it is his undeserved grace. And one by one, Zilpah and Bilhah and their sons, then Leah and her sons, and then finally Rachel and her son come and bow down and show their respect to Esau. So now that the family is introduced, verse 8, Esau says, And what do you mean by all this company that I met? And Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Jacob now, Esau now inquires, You know, this, that company of animals that were sent to me, You know, more than 550 animals that came in these different droves that were sent to me, What was that for, Jacob? And Jacob says, well, that company of animals, I sent them so I could find favor or grace in your sight. Again, it's that same term, grace. Verse 9 says, but Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. So what we understand or what's implied in this verse is that over the past 20 years, despite not receiving the covenant blessings of Abraham, Esau has prospered. Esau has become wealthy. So much so that, you know, even though this expensive gift has come to him, he says, no brother, you you, you keep it because I have more than enough. Now you say, well, how did... Esau prosper if he was not, if he didn't get the covenant blessing? Well, again, this is the common grace of God at work in Esau's life. Like so many unbelievers in the world today, you know, who do well in different areas in their life. Why? Because that's common, God's common grace to even the unbelievers in the world. So Esau is plentiful uh, and he's rich. And so he says, I have enough, brother. Keep these animals for yourself. But Jacob is insistent. And he says in verse 10, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. I want you to notice here, Jacob is no longer saying, this present is to appease you, my brother, to find favor in your sight. Notice what he's saying. He's saying instead, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my gift. There's a change in what Jacob is saying now. Why? Why has Jacob made this change? Well, Jacob explains because Jacob says, because just like I saw the face of God and he's referring to what happened the night before and I was shown grace and I lived. Now Esau, as I see your face, I have been shown grace. I have been accepted in your sight and I live. And, and what he's doing is he's connecting Esau's gracious dealing with him with God's gracious dealing with him. He's saying, it's like God being, God graciously dealing with me like he did the night before. That's how you are being to me, Esau. And then, so then Jacob goes on to say, so it's not to appease you. If I found favor in your sight, then please accept it. And so he goes on to say in verse 11, please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. So Jacob is very insistent and Esau finally accepts the gift. Again, did you notice here, Jacob gives God the glory. He says to Esau, all the material prosperity that I have, well, he, there's no mention of it's because of my clever scheming or hard work or strength. He doesn't say for 20 years I had toiled you know, in Padanaram under Laban. There's no mention of the, you know, of the multicolored sticks or branches or, or whatever that he used. What he says is, no, all this material prosperity that I have, it is purely because of God's undeserved grace toward me. He gives the glory to God. And he's saying, this is God's work. This is not my doing. And notice also, Jacob has also now changed the word from, please accept my present brother, to please accept my blessing that is brought to you now remember from a human perspective this word blessing is is significant from a human perspective we know that Jacob had stolen the blessing from Esau now, obviously, he can't change that fact that now he's the bearer of the Abrahamic blessing. He can't change that fact. He can't give that covenant blessing. It's not a thing that he can pick up and give it back to him. It's just become a reality now. He's the covenant heir now. But in a, as much as Jacob is able, Jacob now wants to give some of the fruit of that blessing with Esau. As a way of making restitution for the wrong that he has done. To say, I want to set things right. I know I grabbed this blessing from you. But God has graciously blessed me. And I want to, in some way, make restitution and make things right with you. A few application points that I want to bring out from this section. First of all. You know, in Romans 12, verse 18, it says, If possible, so far as it it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And if you ask the question, why? Why? Because, for those of us who are Christians, if God has shown us grace and He has forgiven us of our sin and there's peace in that relationship then that's how, then we need to extend that same grace and forgiveness to others around and live in peace. So you see, instead of nursing grudges and bitterness toward others, we should seek to mend broken relationships and even make restitution where we have done wrong or taken something from the other. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning who has a broken relationship with someone. Now, it may not be possible to live at peace with everyone. That's why Romans twelve eighteen says, in as much as it depends on you, because there are other factors perhaps in that other person. But the call is, in as much as it depends on you and me, we are to live in peace with everyone. Why? Because when we live in peace, it, is, it bears testimony to the grace of God that is at work in our lives. That's why when we claim to be Christians, when we claim to be believers, when we claim to say, Oh, God's grace has invaded in my life. I have experienced it. Now I live for Him. And we have so many broken relationships around us because of us. It makes a mockery of what we say we believe that Christ has done. as Christians because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ we must strive to live at peace with everyone that vertical relationship with the Lord always will translate into our horizontal relationships. in fact even the first two commandments right it's connected love the Lord your God And the second is like this, love your neighbor as yourself. Because of your love for God, there's a way in which you will deal with one another horizontally. It always has to flow that way. Otherwise, the vertical relationship is in question. As far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. The other thing I want to point out in this section is that there is... A big emphasis on the word grace or favor in this section. You know, I think on this day, Jacob would have gotten a better understanding of what grace is. I mean, he tried to literally buy grace, he literally tried to buy favor from Esau by giving him an expensive gift. But what does he finally realize? Jacob realizes that change in Esau has nothing to do with his expensive gift. It had everything to do with God's gracious dealings. It was God's grace that changed Esau's heart, not Jacob's expensive gift. You cannot buy grace. You can't, you can't inherit grace. It's never deserved. It was all of God's undeserved grace that Jacob began to realize. Jacob would have learned that grace cannot be bought or earned. Grace is always freely given to the undeserving. And Jacob was now beginning to recognize God's undeserved grace everywhere in his life. In my family, in the possessions that I have, even in this mending of this relationship this is God's grace. But contrast that, that recognition of God's grace in, in Jacob with Esau's response. I mean, like I said before, Esau had also become prosperous in these 20 years. But if you paid close attention to Esau's words, he never acknowledges God, let alone the grace of God in his life. He's just happy with his material prosperity and sees no need for God or his grace. What a sad picture, isn't it? What a sad picture. I wonder if there's someone here today who's not a Christian. And you're thinking, oh, you know, I'm pretty happy with where my life is at. You know, I, I, I've got enough and more. I don't need anything else. And I certainly don't need God. I want to tell you, friend, that the good that you have in your life is God's common grace in your life. It has nothing to do with your, anything that you have done. This is God's grace in your life. It's His common grace in your life. And I would say to you, friend, don't harden your heart against God like Esau did. Rejecting God. You know, so blind to His grace in His life. But turn to God and see His undeserving grace that is already at work in your life in some fashion or form. But most of all, friend, I want to tell you this. If you want to really understand God's undeserving grace, you just have to look at the cross of Calvary. See, God sent his only begotten son, the son that he loved, to come into this world to die on that wretched cross for self-sufficient, self-righteous, sinners like you and me that is undeserving grace where god looked at jesus and jesus was condemned and judged for the sin of his people where he was treated as the sinner and he was judged and he died for sinful people like you and me why So that as Jesus died and rose on the third day, all who would put their faith and trust in Jesus would bear the righteousness of Christ and would be fully accepted in God's sight. That's undeserved grace. Jesus gets punished so that sinners like you and me can be made right with God what do you have to do? nothing it's a free gift of God you cannot earn it you cannot buy it in any sense it is purely God's gracious gift and, he, and Jesus has paid that way by which undeserved sinners like you and me can be made right with him So I would tell you friend turn to Jesus and believe in him while you still have time while you still have breath in your lungs. And if you say I believe then I would say then turn from living for yourself turn from your sins and follow Jesus and rest in him and trust in him and make much of him all the days of your life and continue to do that. And as you continue to do that Others will say, that's someone who follows Jesus. So we see in this passage, in this particular section, there is some changes in Jacob. As he's recognizing the grace of God in his life, in and around him, unlike Esau, Esau, who does not acknowledge anything about God or his grace, even though he too has been materially blessed. And this brings us now to the peaceful separation in verses 12 through 20. The peaceful separation. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. So now that everything is made right between the two brothers, Esau invites Jacob and he says, Come, follow me back to my home in Zaire. Now geographically, Zaire is down south. Jacob has just come from the north. He's crossed over the Jabbok River that goes west like this. And now he's going to go this way because the promised land is over here. And Esau is saying, come down, follow me down to the south. That is nowhere near where the promised land is. And remember, the Lord had told Jacob to return to the land of promise. And I'm sure in Jacob's interaction with Esau, he would have recognized Esau has no regard for God. Nothing whatsoever. So Jacob shouldn't be going with Esau to Zaire and settle down with him there, down south. And that's exactly what Jacob does. Where he politely refuses to go with Esau. And he brings up a legitimate excuse. Verse 13. So in reply, Jacob says to Esau, My Lord, my, lo- my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Zaire. Now for those of us who have little children, know what it's like to travel with little children. You know, know, even just for a small journey, you just have to pack so much. Sometimes even coming on a Sunday morning, the kind of stuff we pack, you almost think we're moving overseas for a couple of months or something. And then generally, you know, when you travel with little children, It's often a start, stop, start, stop because of various needs. And sometimes it can even be quite chaotic. So you can't move that fast when you have little children with you. And Jacob says, I've got little children. And it's not just little children. I've got little animals as well. Kid goats and lambs as well. And so he says, Esau, I'm not going to be able to keep up with your 400 army of men. So you go on ahead and I'll come at a pace that's more favorable to my family and, these, and the nursing flocks. But then he also adds this, and I'll see you in Zaire. That's what he says at the end of verse 14. What's happening here? Jacob is being Jacob again. He's being deceptive again. You know, he lies about going to Zaire when he had no intention of going to Zaire. In fact, if you read the pages of scripture, you will never read anywhere that Jacob finally goes to Zaire. He doesn't go there. He goes to the promised land. Why did Jacob lie? Maybe he didn't want to offend Esau. Again, you know, thinking, you know, he's this big brawly guy and... You know, all this tension after these years. Yes, things are pretty good right now, but, you know, he's asked me to follow him. I don't want to offend him, so I'm just going to lie to him. In any case, that is exactly what Jacob does. He lies to to Esau. Now, this doesn't mean that Jacob isn't a believer. He is a changed person, but he has many sinful tendencies and he still needs to grow in grace and faith okay so Jacob comes up with that excuse now Esau replies in verse 15 let me leave with you some of the people who are with me but he said what need is there let me find favor in the sight of my lord and so Esau returned that day on his way to Zaire so if so Esau offers an escort to go with Jacob, you know maybe as a protection perhaps for Jacob and his family. But again, J- Jacob politely says, "Oh Esau, there's no need for so much care. You know, you've already been so gracious and kind to me. So please, this request of mine may also be favorable in your sight. I don't need so much of care from your hand. And maybe Esau understood from this that this was Jacob's polite way of declining his offer. And so Esau, like some of the other people that we've seen in Genesis, like Ishmael and Laban, they part ways from God's chosen seed line and ultimately from God's blessing. Esau goes back down to Zaire, south of the land of promise. And we never read of Jacob and Esau ever meeting again till Isaac's death. And Jacob instead, we read in verse 17, but Jacob journeyed to succor. So now he's journeying west along the Jabbok river toward the promised land. And it says, he built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. And therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. Now, Succoth just basically means booths or tabernacles. You know, temporary dwellings. So Jacob may have stayed in Succoth for a little while in booths and tabernacles and so on. And so he named that place that way. Now, verse 18 says, and Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. Finally, Jacob is in the land of Canaan. And In fact, the word there translated safely is the word that is related to the word peace, shalom. So we could even translate it like this, that Jacob came peacefully to the city of Shechem. Now, why do I bring that up? I think the text is using this word particularly because, remember back at Bethel, Jacob had said, Lord, if you keep me safe, and if you bring me back to the land in peace, then you will be my God. What has God done? God has been faithful to that vow. God has been faithful to bring Jacob back to the land in peace. He has brought Jacob safely back to the land and he has fulfilled his side of the equation. Verse 19 and 20. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. Now it's quite likely that the place Shechem is named after the son of Hamor whose name is also Shechem. So what does Jacob do as he reaches Shechem? He buys a piece of property, buys a piece of land in Shechem. This is the second piece of land that the patriarchs would have bought. Remember Abraham back in the day bought that cave at Machpelah. Now, Abraham, uh, now Jacob buys a plot of land in Canaan, again to show that, you know, he's showing Canaan is my permanent home and he's trusting that one day all this land will be my home. And on this piece of land, Jacob builds an altar and it says, he calls it El Elohi Israel, which basically translates, God, the God of Israel. You know, if you've noticed the journey of Jacob, unlike Abraham, who once he turned to the Lord, everywhere he goes he builds altar and sacrifices to the Lord. Jacob has not done that until now. This is the first time Jacob builds an altar into the Lord, uh, unto the Lord, and presumably, you know, offering sacrifices to the Lord as well. And by naming the altar God, the God of Israel, El Elohi, Israel, he's acknowledging this all-powerful God is no longer the God of my fathers. He is the God of Israel. He's my God. And he has powerfully and faithfully brought me to the land in peace. El Elohi, Israel. See, this account of a scoundrel like Jacob coming back to the land is an account of God's undeserving grace shown to a sinner. And we will see even further, Jacob still has lots of things that he needs to grow in. But this is nonetheless God's undeserving grace toward a sinner. And even this section, as you think about just what's happened here in Genesis 33, the fact that his brother did not kill him, the fact that he returned in peace to the land, and that too when he was weak, he was limping. You know, he has no strength. There's no more scheming. He he can't do much even though he tries to do some things here and there. This is a demonstration of God's powerful grace at work in Jacob's life. and and even more so when I think about it, and it is through this imperfect man that finally Jesus will come and the grace of salvation will come to the entire world. Now as the Israelites are listening to this section, they would have sensed something of what God is doing, something of their journey back to the land if you remember Jacob's deliverance from from Laban that was a picture of deliverance from Egypt remember with all the usages different words that were used under servitude and uh, Laban coming after Jacob all of that reminiscent of Pharaoh and the mockery of idols all, all those things reminiscent of what happened and that deliverance from Egypt Now, where are the Israelites? Well, they've been delivered from Egypt. They're in the plains of Moab. Well, did they come there immediately after after Egypt? No. This is after many years of wandering in the wilderness. They too, like Jacob, have had issues, have wandered away from the Lord. And now they're in the plains of Moab wondering, okay, are we going to enter the promised land? And just like how we saw, you know, Jacob didn't need any help from his brother Esau and they parted ways. I'm sure the Israelites would be thinking, oh, that's right. As as we've finished the wilderness journeys and as we've prepared to enter the land, you know, in Numbers 20, we read that they come across the Edomites. They're the descendants of Esau they don't give them safe passage to go back to the land and essentially then they part ways. So that's also happened where Edom and Israel have parted ways. Will they come back to the land? Oh yes, they will. As they're seeing Jacob the scoundrel who's had so many issues, who's been brought safely into the land. Why do they have confidence? Because that same grace, that same undeserving grace that was at work in Jacob's life is at work in the nation of Israel and God will bring them back to the land. And it's the same for us as Christians too, right? Prone to wander? Prone to leave the Lord I love? But why is it that we can be assured that we will be brought back home to the land with him only because of his undeserving grace. Let us never lose sight of God's grace and may it cause us to joyfully serve our Lord and live for him. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize that no matter how much we hear about your abounding grace, it is never enough. It is never enough because your grace is so much more greater than we realize. It is also never enough because we continue to wander away from you. And yet, Father, as we are reminded of your powerful grace, may it cause us not to excuse our sin and to continue to wander away from you, but may it cause us to love you more, to love Jesus more, and may it cause us to, in confident faith, live for you even this day. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.